and welcome to another episode of the LA Public Health Podcast. My name is Steve Baldwin, and joining me on today's show, again, we are very glad to welcome Dr. Muntu Davis. He's the medical director for the LA County Department of Public Health. Dr. Davis, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. Always good to have you on the show. Dr. Davis, what's next after the surge? We had a really big surge in COVID-19 during the winter months and over the holidays. It seems like we're on the other side of that surge now. With so many people vaccinated in LA County and the number of new infections appearing to be going down, is there still a need for those who are not vaccinated to get vaccinated and or boosted? Yeah, I, I would say that there there still is. I mean, if we look back at the prior surge um, before last winter, the one prior to that, we saw surges that came in the summertime, not as high as the wintertime, uh, and then later on again uh, in the fall. So if we're going to continue that pattern, you know, we already know that we have 1.8 million eligible residents who haven't been vaccinated with their first dose of vaccine, as well as roughly 2.7 million residents who are eligible for but haven't received an additional dose or a booster dose. Yeah, there's still a need. There's still some risk if we see these same patterns. And then lowering transmission and preventing the emergence of other variants of concerns uh, is more likely when more residents are up to date. So less infections, lower number of infections, less likely we might get another variant. And then hospitalization and death rates are still uh, substantial, um, especially in relationship to things like influenza. And so this is another step to take to protect our healthcare system uh, by getting those vaccines that help prevent serious outcomes like hospitalizations or death. And then vaccinating children over five will also help reduce transmission in school settings, as well as reduce disruptions like missing school and other school activities uh, that occur, you know, once someone is infected. So yeah, there's a there's a need to protect ourselves um, even moving forward, even though we're coming down from this last surge. We're still seeing pretty low vaccination rates in the youngest age group, the children ages 5 to 11, although the Pfizer vaccine was approved uh, back in November for that age group, children age 5 to 11. Why do you think those numbers are so low? And what would you tell parents who are still hesitant about getting their child vaccinated? Well, first off, I want to acknowledge that many parents still have some concerns about the, the safety of the vaccines and whether or not there are any long-term effects. Some also look at the fact that for this age group, it's under emergency use authorization uh, and doesn't have full FDA approval, although we expect that given the pattern that we've seen with the other uh, vac- vaccines for other age groups. But I do also want to note that you know these vaccines uh, so far have been shown to be safe and effective. You know, side effects that many are worried about in younger groups like myocarditis is rare. Um, and when I say rare, there was a, an analysis back in December for five to 11 years old, year olds, um, you know, 12 out of 8 million doses of Pfizer vaccine that have been given uh, had confirmed cases uh, or met the case definition of myocarditis. So it's pretty rare when we're talking about that. And actually the risk of myocarditis is higher with COVID-19 infection uh, than it is with getting vaccinated. But there's also should note that there's no evidence of any long-term side effects like infertility, which is what we've heard some parents think about or be worried about. It's important to note that in this age group, you can still have serious illness, hospitalization, or even death uh, from COVID-19 infection. Uh, so although we talk about, you know, in this group that 
may have a mild infection. Um, you know, there have been some that have progressed, uh, been hospitalized, and a few that have passed away, unfortunately. So the vaccines, like other vaccines, help to prevent, you know, severe illness and do reduce the risk of infection. And so, you know, we really want to make sure that the kids are protected, like with any other vaccine, you know, against an infection that is totally um, preventable in terms of serious outcomes and, and reduced risk uh, with getting vaccinated like COVID. We've talked a little bit on previous episodes. Children younger than 18 generally experience more mild symptoms than older uh, individuals. Why is the vaccine necessary in children younger than 18 if they only have mild symptoms? Well, again, not all have mild symptoms. Um, some do end up in the hospital. But we also have to remember that children can also transmit. Um, so, mm. you know, really, we're, we're talking about how many people can we reduce the risk of infection in, again, to try to prevent, you know, more serious variant. And so uh, remembering that uh, children can be infected, they can transmit, they can have severe illness, they can be hospital, and they have died uh, from having COVID-19 is, is really important to consider. You know, as we look forward, again, we've seen these waves. If COVID does stay the way it is, you know, we need these vaccines to reduce the risk of infection. And then if you do get infected, to help, again, prevent that, that risk of severe illness. As we look at our cases during this winter surge, we see that, you know, children aged 5 to 11 and those aged 12 to 17 represented a larger share of cases relative to the share of the total population here in L.A. County. And what I mean by that is that 5 to 11-year-olds represented 15% of January cases, uh, although they only comprised uh, just about 9% of the L.A. County population. Hmm. And for 12 to 17-year-olds, they represented 13% of the January COVID-19 cases, but only seven represent only 7% of the total population. That's a significant, um, those are significant numbers there, and we can't underestimate, you know, the protection that we can have by all of our uh, eligible populations being uh, vaccinated. So Pfizer recently submitted clinical trial data to the Food and Drug Administration for review for the safety of its vaccine for children four years and younger. So when do you think we're going to see the rollout of vaccine for that age group, the youngest age group, four years and younger? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. And, um, and recently, at the time of this recording of these, Pfizer decided, and I guess in consultation with the FDA, decided to wait for more data on a three-dose series. They had uh, submitted data for a two-dose series, and they want to look at the three-dose series of the vaccine, you know, which they're expected to submit uh, to the FDA in early April. Uh, and I believe that was, you know, because they were concerned about uh, whether or not it, it led to the protection level that they wanted, you know, with just two doses, uh, which is fairly common in, in children of this age to have more than the typical dose that an adult would get uh, just in order to build up their immunity. So it's likely that the vaccine for children ages six months to four years won't be available until uh, the spring of this year. Got it. Okay. I was also looking at the the CDC who recommendations that were recently updated, and the CDCs now seems to have a preference for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines over the J&J vaccine. So does this mean that those who receive the J&J vaccine are not protected? What they basically found was that um, you can see the difference in, in when booster doses are recommended uh, between the different vaccines. Uh, so for those who got uh, the J&J vaccine, still effective, not as effective, 
the booster is recommended at two months after receiving that that single dose. Whereas for you know the Pfizer and Moderna, the two mRNA vaccines, the recommendation is for five months after that. So a longer benefit uh, in terms of vaccination. And so they recommended that even the benefit of you know getting an mRNA uh, over a J and J booster, there's more benefit uh, to that. And so that's been the recommendation. But if someone wants to get a J&J booster, they can, and they still will get some protection from that. Uh, but just based on the, the studies, it looks the, the CDC went ahead and recommended the uh, Pfizer or Moderna booster after getting Johnson & Johnson. You still are protected, but in, in general, again, you know, the booster dose is recommended earlier uh, than in Pfizer and Moderna. Okay, thank you. That's really clear. So many people that test positive largely due to the Omicron variant that's been spreading this winter, are vaccinated and boosted. It sort of begs the question for me, are these vaccines effective still, particularly against Omicron? Yeah, I would caution the many. You know, when we look at Hmm. our case rates uh, in terms of those who are unvaccinated to those who are vaccinated, are fully vaccinated, and those who are vaccinated and boosted, you know, we see a two and to four fold increase in terms of the risk. Uh, so mm-hmm. unvaccinated to those who are fully vaccinated and boosted, their case rate was four times that of those who are vaccinated and boosted. So mm-hmm. I think we have to be cautious when we say many. We definitely had more, uh, but we also have more people who are fully vaccinated and fully vaccinated and boosted. And we expect to see more cases just because sometimes the vaccine effectiveness may be different based on, you know, each person's underlying health conditions. But in general, yes, the, the vaccines remain uh, our best measure to protect people from COVID and reduce the likelihood of serious illness, as well as the emergence of new variants. You know, we want people to be up to date, uh, and that is finishing your primary series, getting your booster dose whenever that's due. Uh, and for some who are immunocompromised to get that additional dose, even before that booster dose is due. You know, again, these vaccines are are expected to do what they were originally authorized for, protect against severe illness, uh, including hospitalization and death. I will note that even for Omicron, it still does that. And after the vaccines were authorized, um, we also saw that there was some benefit to reducing infection. And so, as I mentioned, those differences in case rates, that's due to the vaccine and reduce the the risk of getting infected. Um, So these vaccines have still been effective even through this winter surge with the Omicron variant. But again, we know that there can be breakthrough infections, but in most of those people, they really are not experiencing severe illness and, and you know, definitely a, a very low risk of dying uh, after being infected if they do get infected after being vaccinated and boosted. That's really good to know. I do have another question along the line of boosters. It's been, I think it's been close to six months since I got my booster my last booster. And so my question is, will we need an additional booster in the future? When is the next booster due? Any thoughts (laughs) on that? That's a good question. Everybody's been asking that question. It even started when we got that first series. You know, with many of this, we sort of watch the data, you know, and the, the CDC does this well, providers do this well, to see when it looks like antibody levels from the vaccines are starting to wane and, you know, you're starting to see other more infections or more serious illness and death in those who are vaccinated. At this time, it's still too early to tell. I mean, there's been some 
stories in the news um, at the time of this recording that the effectiveness of the booster starts to wane, but they didn't characterize what that meant, <laughs> but that there still was good protection against preventing hospitalization or death. And so that waning could mean that, uh, you know, really it was just that protection against getting infected was less, but but they're still effective in terms of what they, again, were originally authorized for uh, was to help reduce severe illness and death. So future boosters may be needed. They may be targeted to specific groups. Um, they may be created for, you know, specific variants. But what I can say right now is what we have right now has been effective against uh, everything we've seen thus far. The idea of having to have a booster after an initial vaccine isn't new, right? I mean, we've seen this with other vaccines that are pretty common. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, most of us know our, our tetanus uh, shots, tetanus booster, you know, after 10 years. We've seen the change in terms of pertussis for whooping cough. The recommendations change on when to get a booster for that. Now, the time being shortened as we started to see you know, more cases three years out versus five years out, you know, in, in kids. And the change that adults um, in getting their tetanus booster also got in uh, what they call an acellular pertussis booster that was along with that. Uh, that was the Tdap shot. So that, you know, sort of went in, but those were boosters. So this is not a new concept. You know, people should just pay attention because sometimes things do change. But the idea is to, to get them when they're due so that you have that protection. Okay, let's shift gears a little bit and discuss testing. So at the height of the surge, getting tested became challenging due to an increased demand in testing and in wait times for the results. So how often should people be getting tested now and once the surge is completely over? Great question. Um, I do want to say that, you know, the first thing that people should do is, is always try to reduce their risk. That is really what will help prevent you from from getting infected or reduce your risk of getting infected. And then there are certain situations where you do want to get tested. Those can include definitely if you have symptoms of COVID, the best way and the only way to confirm that you have COVID is to to be tested. And we do recommend that people at least five days after being known or suspected to have been a close contact to someone with COVID-19 when they were infectious, they also get tested to see, you know, if they may have that infection. And with that, um, we've seen our infection control or our isolation and quarantine guidelines change uh, so that getting that test helps to, you know, know that you're at reduced risk for transmitting to others. Uh, but then there are also situations like in for screening for schools or workplaces or congregate settings uh, where there's high risk, where some undergo routine screening just to identify cases earlier so that we don't have, you know, outbreaks in a population at high risk. And then, you know, before going on travel, just so you know whether or not it's you are infected and that you are unlikely to or less likely to infect others. Uh, and then after travel, since you've been around others who you may not know their vaccination status, is another time to check to make sure that you aren't unknowingly infected. And then if you're asked by your healthcare provider or a public health official to be tested, um, you know, as a close contact or if they're worried about it, then then go ahead and get that test then as well. It adds that additional information so you know what's going on with you and whether or not you may be uh, a risk to others. And where can people go to get tested now in the county? I know there's a lot of different uh, locations. What are the most common places where people can get a test now? 
Well, the first place is always check in with your provider or your provider network. You know, they often have test sites that are set up, you know, on their locations uh, or contracts with others to do that. So checking with them, um, there are testing, you know, sites that are currently available, community testing sites. Many of them are at pharmacies. Many of them, you know, don't require an appointment. Some of them do require an appointment, so you can walk in in many places. Employers and schools sometimes offer testing as well. And then there, again, you know, some non-county testing sites, you know, that you can find. But, but in general, you know, some places that do offer the testing will sort of tell you what they offer and what they what you need to make an appointment or what you need to come in. But the thing to know in, in all of this is some may charge for a test, but tests are generally free. Um, they're still covered. They're still not something that we expect people to pay for. They do ask for information, which is identifiable information, so that they can track it back to you and get you your results in terms of asking for contact information. But important to note that if you're looking for a test for a child, whatever location you're going to go to, make sure that they can test that that child um, at their age. There are some limits in some places in, in what they can do. And then there also are test kits now uh, more widely available to be done at home. Some of these are tests that you collect the specimen and then send it off to a lab for the lab to actually give you a result. And others are self-tests in which you collect the specimen and you run the test yourself at home. And oftentimes those you'll get your results in you know 10 or 15 minutes. That's what's available right now. And those are the, the various places people can go and get testing. And I do want to note in that one, actually, uh, the federal government has offered up to four free test kits per household. And so people should, you know, go to COVID test, COVID test with an S, uh, .gov in order to sign up and, you know, get those tests. And those tests are free as well. That's great. And we will put that link in the show notes in the podcast player for this episode. So you can link directly to that website. That's covidtests.gov. All right. So, Dr. Davis, I take a test. I find out that I'm positive. What do I do next? Let's assume that I have symptoms of COVID-19. What steps do I need to take? Great question. So regardless of whether or not you have symptoms, you do need to isolate. So that means, you know, stay away from others, stay home and away from others. Follow the instructions uh, for isolation, which you can find on our website. You know, if you have symptoms, the idea is, again, that you stay home away from others. Um, If you can be in a separate room, if you can use a separate bathroom, That would be great. The instructions to follow are on our website at ph.lacounty.gov backslash COVID isolation. And I'm sure you'll put that up on the website as well. And then you should tell your your close contacts that they may have been exposed and give them, point them to the quarantine instructions so that they can figure out what they need to do um, as a close contact to you. If you get a call, you know, that says LA Public Health, or on your phone, it, you have caller ID and it shows up as 833-641-0305. Please answer the call. Um, it's a call from us at Public Health. We'll answer questions. We'll you know, uh, find out your situation and, and give you actually helpful information on what to do in order to reduce your risk of transmitting to others. If you don't get a call from us, you can always call 833 540 0473, again, 833-540-0473, you know, get your questions answered as well. And again, if you don't have symptoms, but you recently tested positive, 
same instructions. Um, you still need to stay at home and away from others and follow those isolation instructions and tell those who you've been in contact with that they may have been exposed. And again, we'll put those links and the phone number in the show notes for this episode so you can look it up easily in your podcast player. Okay, so we have unfortunately heard some reports of fake testing sites, Dr. Davis. Where can people go to identify testing sites that have been vetted by either L.A. County or by the state? Yeah, covid.lacounty.gov backslash testing. Again, covid.lacounty.gov backslash testing. That's where you can find testing sites or locations uh, that have been vetted by LA County. These sites require no out-of-pocket costs for those being tested. They are available to everyone, regardless of health insurance or immigration status. But that's your best bet to find you know sites in LA. In addition, if you're out of LA or you're going to be somewhere else, um, you can always go to covid19.ca.gov, covid19.ca.gov, and then find the link towards the middle of that page on testing. And there should be a link after that that says where to get tested. You can search for testing sites anywhere in California. Great. And I'll just add that if you believe that your personal or financial information has been compromised as a result of a fraudulent testing site, we have tips on the website to avoid and report identity theft. And that is at the cdba.lacounty.gov forward slash identity theft website. And I'll put a link to that also in the show notes so you can easily access that from your podcast player. All right. The guidance around masking has changed. We're covering all the bases today, vaccines, boosters, testing, and and we're going to talk about masking too. Um, I think probably what you're getting at is the number of layers that we put in place are based on what we see in terms of risk and community transmission. So if we're seeing, you know, lots more cases out there, there's lots more risks. So there are lots more layers, whether that's adding masking or higher grade masking, whether that's uh, physical distancing, which we're not doing anymore, but definitely with vaccination, definitely with testing, you know, before going to an event or after an event or before travel or after travel, you know, because the risk is so high, because you're more likely to run into somebody uh, with COVID-19, whether it's in a personal or professional situation. So I think as we start to get past this winter surge, um, our community transmission is still, you know, rated as being high. Uh, We were very high or extremely high during the, the peak of the winter. Um, But as we start to come down into substantial, as we get into moderate, as we get into low, you start to see less layers being required or recommended uh, because the risk is much lower. You know, it's sort of like being uh, out in cold weather. The colder it is, the more layers you put on. The warmer it is, you take off layers. So we're hoping to get to that warm weather (laughs) so that we don't need many layers. But there always will be some layers that are needed because you can't get sunburned. (laughs) Isn't it sort of human nature to get past this big surge and where we're seeing 40,000 cases a day and now we're down to below 10,000 cases a day and it kind of seems like, oh, we're past the worst of it. But the truth is we're not in a no-risk situation. We're in a lower risk maybe than we were a month ago, but we are still in high rates of transmission here in L.A. County. Yeah, I mean people say the big surge and we come down. Um, But we have thresholds, and those were set nationally to characterize 
our community transmission. And that's what we're paying attention to as well. You know, just let us know, you know, what the risk is out there, how much is actually spreading. We look at the trends to see if it's coming down or whether or not it stabilizes. But in either case, you know, just like with everyday practices like hand washing, that's to reduce your risk. Uh, That is a layer of protection. Even if we get down to low, we're still going to have recommendations, you know, for people to do to protect themselves. It's the same thing we did back in June when we were at low transmission. We still recommended, you know, washing your hands. Uh, We still recommended that if you were in certain situations and you were concerned to to wear a mask, especially if you were at high risk. There weren't necessarily requirements at that time, but there were recommendations on how to reduce your risk. And that happens with every communicable disease. There are always recommendations to reduce your risk, especially, and they may change given, you know, how much transmission we're seeing at that time. So we've had some changes around the guidance with masking recently. What is the new guidance and why does the guidance around masking keep changing? Yeah, um, so there's a couple ways to think about this. So the the guidance in terms of what type of mask to wear, um, especially as we were getting into and going through high community transmission in the winter surge, definitely changed because the risk was much higher at that time. You remember we first started, we had cloth masks and then as we have gone through two years of of watching cases, investigating and studying, we are now at the point where we see the difference in the type of mask that you wear. The new guidance is to wear a well-fitting medical mask or respirator, or a well-fitting non-cloth mask with multiple layers of non-woven material. And even some of those have ratings, but each of those should have a nose wire so that you can close up that gap at the top of the mask and if we're talking about respirators, um, you may have seen you know, letters and numbers, N95, KN95, KF94. Those are all various types of respirators that also provide better filtration and often a better fit uh, than a cloth mask by itself. You know, these upgraded masks are, are better at blocking virus particles uh, than cloth masks alone, except for those that are higher rated uh, and provide additional protection against, you know, the, the highly transmissible Omicron variant. The real reason the guidance changes is, is we learned what worked best and what works better, uh, and we've provided that guidance on our website as well. That's great. We also hear a lot about vaccines that have been approved for use to combat COVID-19. What about other medications that have been approved for use? Can you talk about some of those? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, it's interesting and, and thankful that you know, we very quickly got vaccinations approved early on or earlier on inside of this pandemic to provide that level of protection. And the next most logical thing was to figure out for those who get infected, what medications work uh, to prevent severe illness and, and death from that illness. And so over the last few months, you know, we have seen medicines Uh, Many of them are oral medicines that are used to treat mild to moderate symptoms of COVID-19, and then others that are injectable medicines that have been used to to treat mild to moderate COVID-19 as well. And many of them have been effective against the Omicron variant and uh, are specific to, you know, what age you are, how much you weigh, your underlying health conditions, and really are things that you you need to talk to a provider about because they're all only provided based on prescription. You know, they're out there. Uh, we have at least three, two of them that are oral, one of them that's injectable, two that are injectable, rather. 
And then we also have uh, medications that are, are used to prevent COVID-19 for those who may uh, be really immunocompromised and may not mount a response to a vaccination. Uh, and that's available as well. Um, and that's injectable. You know, it's really for a specific group of people and is not to be used in lieu of uh, getting vaccinated, but it is something to help those who can't be vaccinated or who don't respond well to the vaccine because their immune systems are too weak. That's great to know. And if an individual feels that they may qualify for one of these medications, what should they do? Anybody that thinks they, you know, one, if you've gotten infected, you should, uh, you know, talk to your provider. You do need that assessment to, to see whether or not you do need to be admitted to the hospital, whether or not your underlying conditions put you at higher risk of getting, you know, sicker from an infection, but also to know, you know, what uh, you should look out for. And many providers, you know, based on what they assess and based on your underlying health conditions, may look to see that you actually are eligible for one of these medications and, you know, provide a prescription for you or tell you where to go uh, in order to get it. But the one thing to know with these medications at the moment is the supply is limited. It should be growing um, over the the next few months, but it, it's not quite up there to meet the demand at the moment. But definitely, you do need a prescription, and so you do have to go to a healthcare provider in order to get that prescription and get that assessment to see which medication is the right one for you if you are eligible. And I'll just note here also that the Department of Public Health does have a website for more information, and we will link it in the show notes regarding the medications that are available for either oral or injectable treatment for COVID-19. Dr. Davis, just want to thank you. As always, a pleasure to have you on the show. You have an open invitation, sir. Always wonderful to talk to you. And uh, thank you again for, for joining the show today. Appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you to all the listeners. This episode of LA Public Health was produced by the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. Our department is nationally accredited by the Public Health Accreditation Board and is committed to protecting and improving the health of over 10 million residents in Los Angeles County. For more information about DPH programs and services, visit publichealth.lacounty.gov and follow us on social media at LA Public Health. My name is Steve Baldwin, and you've been listening to the LA Public Health Podcast.